Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Rupa Subramania Show. I'm Rupa Subramania. I hope you're all doing well wherever you're tuning in from. Uh, thank you once again for uh, coming back to the show. Today, I am joined by Chloe Cole. She's a very prominent uh, detransitioner from the U.S. She's become an activist on transgender issues and currently suing Kaiser Hospitals uh, in the U.S. for pushing her into transitioning instead of properly treating her. Hers is an incredibly uh, important and powerful voice in the gender ideology debate, and I am absolutely delighted to have her on the show. Chloe, welcome uh, welcome to the show. Um, it's a real privilege to have you uh, on uh, on my show. I've been uh, wanting to chat with you for a while. I've been following your journey for quite some time. So um, let's start by um, uh, let, let me start by asking you uh, more about your about your personal journey of uh, transitioning and then detransitioning. Uh, wh- what was it like to realize that you wanted to detransition and what challenges did you face during that process? I think it was probably the deepest pain I've ever experienced in my whole life. I was, it was something that I was in for years and I felt like I couldn't make my way out of it for the longest time. And upon realizing that I made the wrong choice and that there'd be permanent consequences to it, that I may never be able to have children of my own and my breasts are completely gone and I've had a huge part of my sexuality as a woman and a part of myself as an aspiring mother and would never be able to breastfeed. I think, and it's still something that still affects me to this day, it's still one of the most deeply painful realizations I've come to. And the way back from my transition hasn't been easy on the medical front or socially or emotionally. I haven't really gotten the appropriate care that I needed from any of my providers, any of the doctors who got me into the situation in the first place. And that includes my therapist. I've, I still have a lot of deep-seated trauma from going through what I did. And while it's been long enough that I've recovered fairly well from it, there's still a lot of things that... I need help getting sorted with. And I just can't trust my healthcare provider with helping me with that anymore because I've tried. I've tried to reach out to them. And from each doctor, I've gotten a response that either wasn't helpful or it's made my situation worse. And I lost the transgender community after I decided to detransition. Just talking about my regret, they found it offensive. And they told me that my experience wasn't important, that it's not very common, so it's not significant. And just by talking about the pain and regret of transitioning, I was harming the transgender community because they said I was talking about an experience and pushing it on other people. And in doing so, I was preventing people from getting the care that real transgender people needed. 
And so I was harassed and bullied until I stopped speaking about my experience for a while. Yeah. I mean, this is an extraordinary amount of um, stress and trauma for a young person to take. Um, I, uh, how old are you, uh, Chloe? You're 18 now. So when you, so how old were you when you went on the path to transitioning? Uh, and when, at what age did you realize that uh, that you felt that you had uh, made a horrible mistake? Um, and um, you know, what was that a timeline like for you? Uh, those those intervening years, in between. I was 12 years old when I started to identify as transgender, and shortly after. I started to do things like cutting my hair shorter and taking on a new name as part of my new presentation and identity. And then almost less than a year afterward was when I was actually put on the treatments, which was puberty blockers and then testosterone when I was 13 years old and I was just into my eighth grade year. And I underwent a double mastectomy when I was 15 years old, right after my sophomore year of high school. And it wasn't even a year afterward when I was 16 that I came to the realization that transition was causing more harm than it was doing me good. And what kind of harm, what was it doing to you? Um, and, and for the layperson, you know, I, I, and, and I, I count myself as one, things like puberty blockers and these these things sound the this sounds like very very harsh medication um you know what are the effects that this this has on a young person's body i mean i'd say that these treatments were harmful for me in every way imaginable mm. they stunted my physical and sexual maturation as well as my personal, emotional, social, and cognitive development. Before I was put on the puberty blockers, the first endocrinologist I was referred to told me that I was too young to be put on these treatments, that he didn't know what kind of effects it might have on my development and especially my brain development. But I wasn't told these concerns by any of the other doctors. And other doctors pushed it as the only treatment possible, the only thing that could treat my gender dysphoria. And they told my parents that there was no other option, that it couldn't wait until I was an adult, that it had to happen now. And if it didn't, then it would be very likely that I would kill myself. Mm. They told them that it was a life or death situation. But the blockers, the medication I took specifically was called Lupron. Um, and I took it for about a year and I had about three to four shots in total and they work by suppressing the body's production of sex hormones and historically they've been used in children who have precocious puberty. I didn't know this until after I stopped taking them, but they've also been used in the past to sterilize sex offenders. And in, cancer, in cancer treatments. Okay. And I was taking these treatments for a condition that was purely psychological. It was for the distress I had around my body that was treated as a life or death condition. 
with no other cure. So I was already a few years into taking blockers, so I had already started my period, I'd say maybe a year or less before being put on it. And um, as part of the treatment, my menses would cease, but not before it would induce a very, very heavy period, about two weeks after the first shot. Um, but because I was already into puberty, it basically induced a chemically artificial state of menopause. And so I was experiencing symptoms like hot flashes and itching all over my limbs and body. And even if this was something I was told about, I don't think it's something that you would really be prepared for until you actually experience it. Even, it was hard for me as a child, a 13-year-old, to take on something that women don't usually experience until they're in their late 40s to their early 60s. I was going through menopause when I was in 8th grade. And this treatment was, I hated being on it. Mm. I wanted to have my sex hormones back. I was very lethargic throughout the day. And the physical and psychiatric symptoms made it really difficult to focus on things like my schoolwork or just to to be happy. Yeah. And so when I started on testosterone about a month later, I felt amazing because now my body, I thought, was finally healthy again. And I had my energy back. And I had an increased libido, and I was very confident just because of the, um, that's one of the psychiatric effects of testosterone. And I started having my voice drop, and then the physical changes happening within a few weeks, I would say. It was a very powerful drug. And it was very dramatic. These what changes were, were very dramatic. What were some of the physical changes that uh, that um, that uh, you experienced? Um, yeah, a month. You say a month into being on puberty blockers. Yeah. Apart from the um, menopause, from the blockers. I didn't yeah. really have any physical changes per se. Mm -hmm. Okay. Other than I was very lethargic and very sleepy. Okay. But the the testosterone, um, the change in my voice mm. happened very quickly, and it dropped very deep okay. throughout high school i actually had a deeper voice than most of the boys my age and even some of my teachers yeah um but after that came the changes to like the shape of my face and my body i started developing more muscle and my hair and eyebrows started to get thicker and my body hair and facial hair started to started to appear and um i had a really bad body image disorder that went undiagnosed throughout the duration of my transition. And for a while, being on testosterone resolved those feelings temporarily because now I was finally, I finally looked the way that I thought I wanted to. Before I transitioned, I thought that because I wasn't very curvy, because I was on the muscular, the skinny side, and because my breasts and hips weren't particularly developed that I would never make a pretty woman. 
that there was no point in even trying and that the reason why I looked more like a boy, I thought, was because I was supposed to be one. That somehow I had the soul and the mind of a man and that I wasn't supposed to be a girl and that that was one of my signs. But after a while, as I started to progress through my transition and look more and more like a boy, as soon as I went to my freshman year, I actually looked like and was, was perceived as by my peers as a boy. And it felt great being recognized as the person that I was identifying as, as the man that I thought I was. Mm. But I mean, I, it was, it was really nice for a while because I was bonding with other males and I was making friendships and getting social opportunities that I didn't really have before. Mm. And so were for a you... while, I thought that I was so, I was so ugly that nobody would ever love me. So were you easily accepted by your, um, your male friends in, in school? Uh, was that, was that transition for lack of a better word? Like, did you see that, uh, change for you dramatically? Did, were they easily accepting of the fact that you had, uh, you're now one of them, so to speak? I mean, before, before I transitioned, I was mostly hanging out with other boys anyways, mm. and okay. I got along I would say they were the people who I got along most with. But as I got older and as we all started to hit puberty and go, to, go into middle school, the dynamics started to change and I couldn't be as close to them as I wanted to. And now whenever I had a close relationship with a boy, it was expected that I would be in a relationship with him or that they would, or they would end up developing feelings for me. Mm when I just wanted to be friends. And this change in dynamic was really difficult for me because growing up, I often thought of myself as being one with them. I didn't want anything more than that for the most part. And it was, it was something that was growing up yeah. really difficult for me to adjust to. And so having that sort of camaraderie back was, it made me really happy. Did you? And uh, now there, there, there were girls who were developing crushes on me, and um, wow. Sometimes I would get girls like confessing their feelings to me. Yeah. Other times there were some not so pleasant experiences with them. Like I had girls who were, because I was a boy, they thought they could get away with like touching me, or like trying to get me to like hug them or kiss them without me wanting to do so. And I think before I get into this, it's, it's important to uh, for me for me to mention that I had a fear of being sexually assaulted, and it actually ended up happening while I was transitioning. And it was an incident I had in eighth grade where somebody who was bullying me throughout the school year actually went too far and looked me in the eyes and groped one of my breasts. And this was before I was making an effort to hide my chest. So they were visible. 
And that was what prompted me to start using a compression device called a binder to hide my breasts mm-hmm. because I didn't want that to happen ever again. And it just reaffirmed my belief that I had before that in being a woman, I was being vulnerable, especially to things like this, and that I would be in danger. And I wanted to pr- protect myself in doing so. And But I, I didn't realize how much this... Um, the sexual trauma played into my desire to transition. And unconsciously, part of my motivation to continue transitioning was to avoid being sexually assaulted ever again. But I actually experienced more sexual assault while I was presenting and being perceived as a boy than I ever did as a girl. Yeah, I, that's, uh, that's extraordinary. And, um, um, you know, so you're on testosterone, you're supposed to feel some sense of euphoria. Um, and then, but you're also experiencing these challenges, um, um, you know, as a person who's transitioned, uh, you still have your breasts, you're still being perceived. Um, I mean, I just, I just find it extraordinary that, um, you know, while you're transitioning, the social dynamics around you that was also changing rapidly, right? The, the girls were interested in you. The boys saw you as one of them. Um, and, uh, but, but, but tell me, Chloe, like how strong was, was the feeling of gender dysphoria that, I mean, was it, I guess my question is, you know, why, why did the medical community, you know, these are people who are supposed to take care of you. They're supposed to do no harm. You know, why was it so easy for a doctor to just say and tell your parents that um, that, you know, you 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 were experiencing strong gender dysphoria and that you had to be put on this uh, transition? uh, 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 You had to put be put on this path to transitioning. It wasn't always like this. I mean, previous decades, especially with children, they used to take the approach Mm -hmm. of just waiting and seeing how this condition progressed. And most of the time, children would grow out of this this feeling. But neither me nor my parents were informed of this. And now the protocol is yeah. to incessantly affirm the feelings and whatever identity the patient has over actually looking into why they are feeling this way, why they don't want to associate with their own sex. Mm. and the distress that this feeling might come from. And I live in California where they have a law banning conversion therapy, but in the definition of conversion therapy, they include gender identity. And if a doctor takes pretty much any other approach than affirming a patient's perceived gender identity, then they could lose their license because that's considered conversion therapy. Mm -hmm. So really, there was no other choice. It was a systemic failure all around. Uh, Yeah, it it, it most certainly sounds like it. And why, I mean, I I, you know, beyond saying that it was systemic, it was systemic failure. What, what is it that the medical community gets out of, you know, what uh, what are they gaining from this? You know, 
how do they come out of this? How do they um, benefit from uh, encouraging young people like you uh, to go on puberty blockers uh, and, 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 you know, and get, you know, a mastectomy and so on? Is it money? Is there a commercial angle to this? What's, what's going on? Part of it is ideological, but it's also very profitable to put, about, to put a patient on these treatments, mm. especially the younger you go. The younger you sterilize a child and the more medications you put them on, the more surgeries they undergo, the more money you make off of them. And especially once they're on hormones long enough or once they get their sex organs removed, their bodies are no longer capable of producing a healthy amount of sex hormones on their own anymore. So they'll be, they'll be dependent on pharmaceuticals for life. And that's not to mention that pretty much being on, on any of these treatments for an extended period of time will guarantee that you'll experience some sort of serious complication down the line. Mm. And more likely than not, they'll just prescribe you another medication for that. And that's what happened with me. Um, I haven't gotten my fertility checked, but um, I've had my period start about two months after stopping testosterone, so I am hopeful that I'll be able to conceive. But I don't know how things like my egg quality while, were affected while I was supposed to be developing or whether the lack of growth in my hips might affect my ability to vaginally birth. Mm-hmm. But I, I remember in one of my appointments with my endocrinologist, before I started on testosterone, she told me that I would probably experience something called vaginal atrophy down the line. And the way that was explained to me was that this is a condition that um, due to the lack of estrogen in the body, the walls of the vagina start to atrophy, meaning that they get thinner over time and this might make things like sex painful. And it might cause tearing or bleeding, but it could be addressed by taking topical estrogen. And that was the route that I went. But I was 13 years old and I wasn't sexually active yet. So I didn't really understand what any of this meant. And it wasn't explained to me that this atrophy wasn't affecting this one organ. It was actually the rest of the reproductive system and pretty much any organs in the pelvic region. And eventually I actually started to experience complications with my urinary tract as well, mostly UTIs, but also sometimes even like blood clots or clots of tissue mm-hmm. in my urine. And I, in the same appointment, she also told me that being on the testosterone would probably affect my fertility as an adult, but I was still a kid. I wasn't thinking about having kids of my own. I didn't know how important that would be to myself yet. And so 
I just said, I'm fine with that. Because I didn't know how important that was to me. And fertility preservation wasn't presented as an option to me either. But I thought that, well, I mean, if I want to have kids of my own, then I could just do like IVF or surrogacy or something like that, because we already have technologies like that. Mm. But I didn't understand then that it's really not that simple. And that treatments like that come with a whole host of their own complications, especially for the child. And I was on an age where I didn't know yet what things like ovulation or cervix were yet. I didn't know what the fallopian tubes were. I didn't know that there were four stages in the menstrual cycle. All I knew was that there is a period and that after and before it begins and stops, somehow I could get pregnant. And none of the adults who were supposed to help me understand the risk of these treatments helped me to understand any of this. Something that, by being on these treatments for an extended period of time, I, it would affect all those things. So, yeah, I mean, I've, uh, you know, I, it's just hard for me to process what you're saying and what you've been through. It, uh, it, uh, it's just uh, quite an extraordinary um, um, journey that you've been on and you continue to be on this. Uh, and, you know, and I want to talk a little bit about your activism. But before we get to that, um, you, you mentioned to me, uh, you, you mentioned in um, some interviews that uh, that social media played a role in introducing the idea of transitioning to you. Um, can you tell us how this happened? I mean, how did how did social media do this um, in, in shaping your understanding of uh, your gender? I mean, throughout a lot of elementary school, I was getting bullied. I found it really difficult to socialize and get along with my peers and also to regulate myself emotionally. Mm. And after I moved neighborhoods, I was back to square one with having no friends and finding it difficult to build myself back up socially. And that was the same school year that my school district started to roll out devices, laptops for all the students. And um, they, allowed, they allowed the students to take these devices home once they hit fifth grade. And they didn't really have any filters on these laptops for a few years. And so you could access pretty much any website you wanted to. Mm. And this sort of helped to foster the internet addiction that I had through a lot of my um, my childhood and adolescence. Um, but I ended up getting my first phone when I was 11 years old. And most of my other peers already had one for a few years. And they were all using apps and websites like Instagram and Snapchat and Kick. And I wanted to see what I was missing out on. So naturally, I started making my own social media accounts. And um, because I'd always been on the tomboy side, there were a lot of... Um, I really liked things like um, 
like video games and certain shows and comics and other media. And so the the communities that I browse on social media were mostly around those things. And I started noticing that some of the members in these communities would, um, sometimes they would make posts that weren't really necessarily related to the media, but about their own personal lives. And a lot of these members were young people, um, preteens to people in their early 20s who identified with the LGBT. And many of them were transgender young women around my age who identified as males. Mm-hmm. And just hearing them talk about the way they felt around their bodies and themselves as women and not really feeling like they are women. I found it really relatable because growing up, I was a bit on the tomboy side and it was especially difficult for me to to fit in with other kids and other girls. And I always felt like there was something that was setting me apart from the other kids. And now it seemed like I had an explanation for this feeling, why I was so different from, from the other girls. Why... I didn't act like, or feel like, or I thought even look like the other girls. And I mean, throughout a lot of my, my development, that was something that was a huge source of pain for me. And now I thought, I finally understood why. It was because I wasn't supposed to be one. Before I came to this conclusion, though, I kind of switched between a few labels, mostly like around my sexuality. I thought that for a while, maybe I was bisexual or maybe I was pansexual. Maybe I just wasn't straight. And then eventually that became, well, maybe it's not my sexuality that's the issue. Maybe it's my gender because I've never totally felt like a girl. Mm. I don't even understand what that's supposed to mean. But, you know, I've always felt like I related more to my older brothers and my dad than I did my mom and my sisters. And I, the older I got, the less I wanted to associate with things that were feminine. Yeah, incredible. Because what you what you're uh, describing is, um, you know, I, I went through that as a kid as well. Um, and uh, you know, some of what you're saying, you know, I I was very much a tomboy. I didn't really identify with girls. I didn't uh, mostly identified with male figures in my life. And I also partly grew up in the Middle East, where you know, uh, at that time it was very unsafe for girls to be on their own. And I experienced instances where men you know would try to touch you and then I felt very 
vulnerable and ashamed of my uh, the fact that I was a woman. I thought that as a girl, that if I were a boy, nobody would touch me and I would be safe. And so I completely relate to what you're, you know, for, with some of the stuff that you're saying. And uh, it's just, um, I often wonder, you know, what if this this had been available to me at that time, you know, what would I have done? And I think, um, you know, I, I just, I obviously I grew out of it. And as I got older, I started identifying more with, um, uh, you know, feminine things, but, uh, but it is, you know, it is, I feel like it's, this is more common than, than people realize uh, it is. Right. And you would think the medical profession would be aware of this, that, that this, this is, this is not, a decision you can just make just on the fly and that you know you you get a patient who is identifying strongly uh, you know and and then you you know it shouldn't be that easy to just then decide that this person is in need of this therapy having spoken to other women yeah who haven't transitioned these feelings especially when you're growing up around the fear of being a woman or not wanting to grow up into a woman from a girl. Yeah. It's pretty common. And that's a lot, is... if not most women experience that growing up. Yeah. And, that's... and there's a lot of women out there who have tomboy phases. Some yeah. never grow out of it, but that's okay because yeah, it doesn't make them a man. It just makes them unique. I think you've hit the nail on the head here. I think part of what is com missing from these conversations is the fear of uh, the challenges of being a girl. You know, challenges of uh, you know, you know, being being a girl. As you know, when you're growing up, uh, and it, you know, I'm, I'm sure boys have their own challenges. But I feel like you know, especially if you're a girl and you're growing up in a certain kind of environment. Um, you know, it's not easy. And I think that's completely missing from this conversation, uh, you know, or the conversations around gender dysphoria. We're not dealing with the actual problem here. That was a huge part of it for me. Um, yeah. I grew up thinking that being a woman was only being going to be difficult, that there wasn't really in, in it, there wasn't really anything in it for me that I didn't want to get pregnant, I didn't want to have children of my own, that I didn't want to go through the process, the painful process of pregnancy or childbirth or having periods every month mm. and eventually going through menopause and being judged for aging. I didn't see any benefit to this because what I would hear from other women would always downplay the importance and the gifts that all of these things really bring because mm. even if you don't want to have children of your own that's still something that's the, the ability to create life is something that's sacred it should be celebrated but it was nothing that was really explained to me growing up mm. and I often heard that boys have it easier, that boys are better, they're stronger, they're smarter, they're faster, they're better in every way, and that the grass is greener on the other side. But, mm. I mean, I'll never actually be a boy, of course, because 
I was born, I was conceived as a woman, and no treatment could ever change that. But, I mean, I passed quite well as the opposite sex, and during that period of time in my life, I kind of got to have a glimpse at the hardships that men, and especially young men, face. And I feel like it can be a pretty lonely experience. Mm. And it's, while transitioning has caused irreversible harm to my body, and it's taken a lot of things for me that I'll never get back, I think the one thing that I can appreciate about it is that it's really opened my mind up, my eyes up, to the difficulties that men face, and it's helped me to appreciate the men in my life. So, to give give me some examples. I mean, what did you uh, you know learn about the difficulties that young men face? Um. Well, socially, the structure is quite a bit different. There is a bit of a hierarchy that. I found it difficult to uh, to move up in because I wasn't raised as a boy, and I didn't. There were a lot of social nuances that I didn't really pick up on for a while because I didn't know that these were things that I was going to face, and um, it's a lot more difficult to be intimate with your peers, with your friends, or your family. And there's a lot that's expected of you emotionally. You're supposed to bottle your emotions up and just be a man and take things as they are. And there's not really a whole lot, a whole lot of room to, to talk about your personal hardships or what you're going through. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so, Chloe, you've, I want to talk a bit about your activism uh, against uh, gender-affirming care. Uh, you've been very vocal in your opposition to gender-affirming care for minors, um, uh, even testifying in favor of legislation that would limit such care. Uh, can, you tell us, can you tell us why, why you believe minors and their parents should not be able to consent to such care? Um... I mean, I wouldn't really call it care. I would say that gender-affirming care is very much a misleading term. Mm. It's neither a form of care nor is it gender-affirming because if it were affirming a person's gender, it would be helping them to become comfortable in their own sex, in their body, and to discover the underlying causes beneath the gender dysphoria and what's the, the possible traumas and other issues that this feeling stems from. Because a lot of these patients, they have some, sort, some form of either sexual trauma or familial trauma. And a lot of it comes from very, very early childhood. And even knowing this, these providers often don't go into this, but 
oftentimes they'll have this information on file and they won't do anything about it. They'll just treat it as a completely standalone issue. Mm. But in psychology, I don't think that there's any part of the mind that isn't interconnected with the rest. But about a year after I stopped transitioning, I decided that I started to to want speaking up. I started I decided that I wanted to start speaking up about my experience having been through the process of transitioning and eventually detransitioning as a kid and my motivations in doing so were that I wanted to expose the trans the transgender community and how it takes vulnerable children and young adults and how it treats the people whose transitions are a failure. But I also um, wanted to highlight the experiences of children who have been through this process because at the time I was active in communities online that were focused on detransition, but most of the people in these communities were grown adults who had been the pro- through the process of transitioning medically as adults. There weren't any children mm. that I knew of at the time, but I knew that if this happened to me, this must be happening to at least hundreds, mm-hmm. if not thousands of other children. Yeah. But we might never know if nobody ever speaks up about it. And I felt the responsibility to take that upon myself because I don't want what happened to me to happen ever again to any other child because this is never an appropriate treatment for children ever yeah no you're doing extraordinary work in uh you know in in being a voice uh to for those who can't speak up and um you know I you know I, I you know, really um, admire your courage, uh, and uh, as do a lot of people. Um, I, I believe you're in a lawsuit right now. Um, how does your experience with the medical system relate to the lawsuit that you filed? Can you tell us a bit about that? Right. So I'm suing my healthcare provider, Kaiser Permanente, mm-hmm. as well as my doctors, including my surgeon who removed my breasts, my endocrinologist. My, my endocrinologist who put me on hormones and blockers and the gender specialist who referred me to the surgery. And we're suing on the basis of medical malpractice and fraud because they not only gave me the atrogenic treatments that caused me harm, these treatments also failed to address, failed to resolve my gender dysphoria and they failed to diagnose the underlying causes beneath my gender dysphoria. And they lied to my parents that there was no other option, that these treatments would be beneficial in the long run, that if I wasn't put on them, it was very likely that I would die. I would die from being unable to transition. And we were withheld a lot of important information about these treatments and about transition in general. 
Did you, I mean, when, when the doctor is saying this to your parents, did your parents at any point, like, or you, I mean, did you exhibit any suicidal tendencies, for example? No. Or, and... No, I wasn't suicidal until after I started transitioning. And I don't believe I was in the room for this either. Okay. I think this is an appointment that my parents were having one-on-one -on -one with the doctors. Yeah. I didn't know that this was said until after I stopped transitioning and I had a conversation with my parents about it. Wow, so you found out about this much later when 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 in fact I would I would think that the you know, of course, you know, hindsight is always 2020 and you know, you can't go back into the past and change any of this stuff, but I would think that the obvious question to you is Chloe, I mean, are do you do you feel like do you have suicidal tendencies because of the gender dysphoria that you're experiencing? And that would be an obvious question to ask someone who's experiencing this, right? But was that was that ever did they ever part of the psychiatric evaluation that you had to undergo? Was that was that a question that was ever posed to you? I believe so. I mean, it was five or six years ago, so it's really quite difficult to remember. Yeah. But um, I feel like, from what I can remember. The process of my diagnosis wasn't thorough enough. Mm. They had on file that I previously had a diagnosis of ADHD, that I had some very strong symptoms of autism and other and that I had social difficulties and that I had symptoms of a body image disorder. But none of this was ever taken into consideration during the diagnosis or the treatment for my gender dysphoria. Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, I, you know, I know we, we say systemic failure, but uh, I feel like there's something more uh, insidious happening here. Um, and um, and wh what do you expect uh, to... Um, to get out of this lawsuit, what is the message that you're trying to send um, if if the lawsuit uh, goes your way? I want to stop other doctors from ever performing these treatments on children ever again. Mm. And I hope that in doing this, that I can create a precedent for other detransitioners and other people who regret or have been harmed by these treatments to get the justice and care that they need for themselves. Yeah. Uh, you've, you've mentioned, you've talked about your parents uh, in other interviews and, you know, you, you've made it very clear that you don't blame them and that they were under intense social pressure to consent to the treatment and the surgery. Um, what, what do you think parents, um, you know, who are listening uh, to this, you know, um, you know, what wh what do you think the role of parents in these decision decisions should be, uh, and what wh what do you think should be done to support them? It's a really difficult thing to hear about your child coming from these these doctors, these people who should be the professionals in the situation you should be able to trust that if you don't let your child make this life-altering decision 
then their blood is going to be on your own hands as a parent. But these doctors are basically using emotional manipulation tactics, tactics employed by abusers to dupe these parents into letting their kid create the own course, create the course of their own treatment. And when it comes down to it, this whole thing is based on lies and pseudoscience. And as a parent, you have you have to um, be logical while also being emotionally available to your children, letting them know that you love them as they are, that the issue is not their bodies or the way that they're born. It's the way that they perceive their body in their own mind. And that is what needs to change, not the way that they look, not the way that their form is, but how they feel about it. Yeah. But you have to remember that. You have to uphold reality. And you can't affirm your child's perceived identity. I think it's abuse to let a child believe that they were, in fact, born in the wrong body. That this isn't the way that they're supposed to be. And it's been established for years. And you don't need to be an expert to understand that you're born either male or female. And that nothing can change that. And that there's nothing wrong with that. We're born the way that we're meant to be. God made us the way we are for a reason. Mm. And that's okay. That's beautiful. And it's to be appreciated. And these differences between men and women are to be celebrated because we're not rivals. We're counterparts. Yeah, and that truly would be gender affirming in, in, in a real sense. Um, you know, you've, um, I want to uh, uh, ask you about the process, process of uh, detransitioning. We know what transitioning involves, what happens when you stop taking these drugs, uh, these injections? Um, you know, w w what is your body going through um, uh, as a result? I didn't really get any guidance on how I should have went off of hormones. So I pretty much just went off of cold turkey. It was just one final shot, no tapering mm. of doses. I just couldn't stand taking those medications anymore and seeing how it was changing my body and me as a person. But going off of it cold turkey presented a lot of difficulty for me, um, both in terms of my physical and mental health. Um, it became really difficult to regulate myself emotionally because of the extreme hormonal imbalance in my body. And um, I would have really severe episodes. And I think emotionally, that was rock bottom for me. That was the worst I'd ever been in my life. And it was really difficult for me to get out of. And it was affecting all my relationships. I pretty much didn't have any friends by the time that I was in my senior year. Um, 
and physically, it made me really sickly. Um, I had a lot of colds. Um, I didn't really have much in the way of an appetite. So I dropped about like 20, 25 pounds within like two months. Mm. And I became underweight and I was... The UTI-like symptoms started to worsen for a while. And that was when the tissue started to appear in my urine. And it's since disappeared. I've tried to reach out to uh, like an OBGYN, a UROGYN, to try and figure out what was going on with my body. But they didn't respond quickly enough. And it was hard to get a physical appointment with these people. And they often just like made diagnosis that were pretty much just assumptions over email mm. based off of my symptoms without really any any sort of examination. And so I was prescribed antibiotics or I was recommended to take some other medication, but they never really got to the root cause of whatever this was. And so I just, I guess, because now that it, that it's gone, now that it's resolved, I'll never know. Yeah. And my, having reached out to my gender specialists, I just found like, I wasn't really getting any help psychologically. And at one point she even told me like, that this regret I had from transitioning was just another part of my gender journey absolutely disgusting just totally dismissive of everything that I'd been through mm. and my surgeon um I reached out to because for almost a year now as of now I've had this serious complication from the skin grafts that they used in my mastectomy they've started to leak fluid and I have to wear bandages over my chest every day because of this and it yeah. won't stop. And I have no idea what it is. I've I've tried to I, I got an appointment with him and the whole time he was very dismissive of me and my concerns. And his advice was just to put Vaseline on the wound and keep covering it with bandages. And in doing so it actually caused me to have a skin infection. Mm. And that was the last time I went to him. I just can't bring myself to to go back i can't trust that any of these people are going to help me now is that is your experience uh detransitioning and you know and this this kind of care um which is not really care uh is that is that uh, uh representative of uh, the experiences of other detransitioners that they you know they're experiencing these issues and they they're not really getting the help that they need uh to deal with it um, yeah, I mean, I've spoken to a lot of other detransitioners, um, and this seems to be a pretty common theme in that after stopping transition, you pretty much just get put, kicked to the side by your own doctors mm. who helped you to get these treatments. And they pull a complete 180 on you saying like, oh, well, we don't really have any any data on patients like you or, oh, I've never had a patient like you. So I'm either 
not sure how to treat you or I'm just going to outright refuse to treat you. Um, and I mean, there's no codes in place mm. in healthcare for people who stop transitioning or regret their transition or have had some sort of complication from these treatments. So there's nothing for doctors to really abide by when deciding how to treat us. I want to ask you a question about your uh, activism. Um, you know, you've um, aligned yourself with, some would say, some controversial figures like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, can you tell us why you chose to work with these individuals? And, um, and you know, as, as a young person, what, what is it like to navigate these political landscapes for you? I don't necessarily share all the views of people I work with, mm. but I'll work with anybody who's willing to stand against the mutilation and sterilization and abuse of thousands of children, yeah. whether they're Democrats or Republicans or on the left or on the right. It doesn't matter to me because while I guess you'd say that politics would be the water in which I'll, I'll sail my ship. Yeah. It's not an issue that is political. It's been politicized. The left has managed to make it a political issue. But at heart, this is about children. Yeah. And it's about family and upholding reality. And that's something that anybody should stand for, no matter whatever side they're on. What, because what it's is... something that will affect all of us. And it is. What, yeah. And what is the appropriate age, according to you, for someone to transition? Or do you believe that transitioning per se should just be banned? What if you're, say, 22, 23 years old or something, you're an adult and you uh, decide that, you know, I've given this enough time, I'm still, um, you know, feeling uh, strong gender dysphoria. I And I think I'm an adult now and I, I am an adult now. So I'm going to... Um, do this. Um, wh what would you say uh, to that? I mean, you oppose, clearly you oppose it for children, but what, what about adults? And what age do you think you have to be to make that kind of decision for your body? Um, I don't think it's ever appropriate for anybody under the age of 18. But I think even for those under the age of 25, it's... For most people, it's not going to be an appropriate choice for them to be able to make because you're still quite young. And I think in order to make a decision on this, because this is going to affect every single area of your life, and it's going to affect the way, the way that you experience your family, your familial, romantic, sexual, platonic, and work relationships. It's going to affect the way that you experience sexuality down to the way that you experience orgasms or sexual attraction and your fertility and the way that you think and socialize. That is a lot to expect of somebody who is so young. It takes a lot of experience in the world, a lot of years lived, and knowledge not only around these topics but around things like family 
and having children. And I don't think that for for most people under the age of 25 that they'll be able to make a decision on this with informed consent. Mm. It takes a lot. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be a certain age. As soon as you turn 18, you can transition. It takes a lot of introspection and a lot of proper psychological evaluation to be able to make this choice. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the time, these issues, gender dysphoria is accompanied by childhood familial or sexual trauma or learning disorders or other conditions such as autism, ADHD, depression, anxiety, social anxiety, body image disorders, cluster B personality disorders, and the list goes on. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you touched upon something earlier uh, in the conversation we spoke about, you know, what what is the motivation uh, here? Is it commercial? And you said, I think it's commercial, but it's also uh, ideology. What is this ideology? I mean, what, again, is the end goal of this ideology? Like I, when I think about ideology, like I'm thinking of communism, for example, it has a very specific goal. What is the ideology here at play? Um, you know, and what are they hoping to achieve um, by creating a population of transgendered people? Um, you know, what is to be gained? I think it's just another part of the breakdown of family and the devaluation of men and women mm. in their natural roles. While gender ideology supposedly seeks to make gender expression more open and to not enforce gender roles by encouraging transition in individuals who are just naturally gender conforming. You're pretty much strictly adhering to those gender roles by saying, on one hand, there are no differences between the sexes, but on the other hand, those differences are so vast that if you're not completely like, if you don't act or behave completely as expected of your sex, that you're actually of the other, other sex. Um, but you'll notice that a lot of these children who identify as transgender, many of them are not particularly close with their, their, um, their own parents. Not only are they gender non-conforming, which I don't think is a bad trait in itself. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you are of the other sex, but a large part of it for me and a lot of my friends who were trans, I think, was that both of our parents, our mothers and our fathers were in the working force. And so our mothers didn't really have much time. We're very busy. They didn't have very much time to spend with their own children and foster that sort of um, connection at home, which is very important for a developing child. And 
a lot of parents now, in general, they're not really as engaged in the lives of their own children now. They're often very tired from work, and so they're more interested in, say, watching TV or spending time with other adults or resting. But they don't really make time to spend with their own children. Mm-hmm. And they're letting the screen parent their own kid. And because of that, their kids are getting exposed to content such as pornography, which is indicated in a lot of girls' body image, uh, body image disorders, as well as these online communities that are seemingly innocent, but are breeding grounds for things like sexual grooming, or in my case, the the transgender community. I wasn't directly, I wasn't directly exposed to the transgender community at first. I happened, it happened for me through fan bases around video games and cartoons that I liked. Mm. It's very subtle, but a lot of the internet can be a very dangerous place, especially for somebody who has a mind that's still developing. And there's that sort of generational difference that a lot of older people really aren't aware of. I mean, it's it's even, uh, you know, it, it, you know, it, it's even bad for adults, I, I, I think. I mean, it's a dangerous place even for, I, I, you know, I sometimes get sucked into a certain kind of thinking because of something that I've viewed on Twitter or, you know, been you know, in a, you know, a certain kind of, uh, in a certain world, and it gets sucked into that world. So it, you know, just imagine what it would be for a young person. Yeah. Right. It's, it's easy, especially when you have an impressionable, an impressionable mind mm. to get sucked into some sort of ideology. Right. Um, I mean, in a lot of these spaces, there is a lot of anti-natalist, anti-mother, anti-parenthood, anti-family ideology. And that was part of what affected my view of what being a woman would be like. Because it was like, a lot of the feminist dogma that I was being exposed to on websites like Instagram and Tumblr would talk about how painful the female experience is, how horrific and useless things like pregnancy and childbirth were. And sometimes they would even describe the fetus in the mother's womb as some sort of parasite that was just feeding off of the the body of the mother rather than a symbiotic relationship. And things like that made it very, very, made me very, very afraid of becoming a woman and eventually experiencing those things for myself. The terminology that they would use, the way, the horrific, disgusting way that they would describe processes like pregnancy and even just being a mother in general it was very very anti-woman and it would often a lot of it would sort of ridicule not only these processes but mothers and their own their own families and the traditional role of the woman and even being feminine, doing things like shaving or wearing makeup or 
just going out and presenting yourself femininely. I had a lot of shame around these things because I was actually very hyper-feminine when I was a very young child, and I actually got bullied for it a little bit by, by boys, and so I stopped presenting that way. And seeing stuff like that further reinforced it. It told me that, no, I shouldn't be this way. I, w I shouldn't want to be girly or a mother. Yeah, well, I can completely relate to that. Um, you know, I, yeah, final question for you, Chloe, because I know you, you know, you're, you're very busy and, uh, um, and you need to get to other things. Um, you know, since you've begun speaking, speaking up and, you know, and, you know, and through your activism, how do, um, have, have, um, you know, has there been a growing community of G transitioners who've come to you and, 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 you know, and spoken to you about their own experiences and, you know, do, do they, I'm sure they see you as a role model, but you know, what, um, you know, what's next for you? Yeah, I, since I've started speaking out, I've mm -hmm. met a lot of other D transitioners, especially other girls who have been through the medical transition process while they were still children and adolescents. And there's been a few people who've told me like, thank you so much for speaking up. Like you've helped me to, to garner the courage to be able to speak out about my own experience. And I've actually met quite a few of these people in person and it's been been yeah. a wonderful experience and I'm really I'm really thankful that I've that I had that I even had this opportunity to not only talk about my own experience and advocate for other people in the situation but to meet other people who know this pain and to foster each other's growth and to help everybody heal from this yeah I mean that's extraordinary. You're doing that at at the age of eighteen, and um, you know I know I know these decisions. Uh, I, I know what's what's happened to you. Uh, you know is irreversible in some sense, and uh, but I but hopefully through your activism and you speaking out, uh, you're not just a role model for people in the detransitioning community. I think you're a role model for everybody, really. Um, uh, and I, I, you know, including including for someone like me, I, you know, I just applaud your courage and, um, you know, for speaking out on a very emotional and complex issue. Uh, you're wise beyond beyond your years. And, uh, and I, you know, and I just uh, wish you all the very best for whatever is coming up next. Good luck with the lawsuit. And uh, I really th want to thank you for coming on to the show and sharing your experience, your very powerful experience with us. And I hope you'll be back on again soon. Thank you very much. Thank you. You take care. You too.